Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Norton. I'm one of the pastors uh, here at New Denver Church. And today we are going to read um, three of the most well-known verses in the book of Leviticus. Uh, they all come from chapters 18, 19, and 20 in Leviticus. Uh, two of the verses we're going to read are slightly controversial. We'll talk about that. And then one of them is not at all. Um, in fact, uh, even if you've never read Leviticus before, you try to live by this verse. I mean, you might not even be a follower of Jesus, but if you have kids, you teach this verse uh, to your kids. And maybe you didn't even know it was found in this strange old book called Leviticus. But today, we're going to see why it's in there and why it's still really important for all of us. So uh, we're in this series. It's called You Lost Me at Leviticus. Um, We've been reading through. We're about two-thirds of the way through the book right now. Uh, So we've got a few more weeks to go. But Leviticus is the book that comes right after Exodus in the Old Testament. So it's all about how the people of God or the people of Israel can begin a new life with God after he rescued them from slavery in Egypt. And in fact, God just doesn't have a new life for them. He has a better life for them. He doesn't want to just save them from something. He wants to save them for something. In fact, it's not just for them, it's for a life that's better for the entire world. So look at what um, it says at the very beginning of chapter 18. uh, It starts this way. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You must not do as they did in Egypt, where you used to live, and you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you. Do not follow their practices. You must obey my laws and be careful to follow my decrees. I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and laws, for the person who obeys them will live or will experience life by them. I am the Lord. So God is saying you're going to have to live differently than the people lived back in Egypt and differently than the people live in Canaan. You're going to be guided by a different set of values, a different set of convictions, a different way of ordering your world, a different way of ordering the entire world. Um, The way that you experienced back in Egypt, that way led to misery, right? That way led to, to slavery, to oppression, to diminishment, to the devaluing of human life, to despair. And I have a better life for you. I have a better way for you. Oh, and don't forget... He says a few times in these verses, I am the Lord, your God. And every time you see that phrase, I am the Lord, remember, uh, or maybe you didn't even know this, um, the verb or the word Lord in Hebrew is actually the word Yahweh. And that comes from the story in Exodus where God is delivering the people from Egypt. Uh, The people say, hey, by the way, um, what do we call you, God? Do you have a name? Because uh, we just keep saying, you're the God of our ancestors. And that's when God says, you can call me Yahweh, well, because I am for you and I will be with you. And so every time he says, remember, I am the Lord your God, it's a way of saying, remember, I'm for you. I'm on your side. right? I've rescued you from despair and for all those things. And so I want a better life for you. I know what's good for you. I'm never going to ask you to do something that you can't do. I am for you. I am the Lord, your God. And then what follows is a long list of laws or decrees or instructions for the next three 
chapters. And it's clear that what we read in 18 and 19 and 20, they all go together. It it all sort of forms one unit of teaching, meaning these are not individual random rules that are just given randomly as if each of them stand on their own. Um, They work together, not just for the sake of individualized, but for the sake of the entire community. That, That God is actually forming a community through these rules. And all these instructions, they're really like the strands of a wicker chair, right? They're woven together, and the purpose of them is to create a healthy web of human relationships, a healthy community that's going to be strong and sturdy and stable. And so because of that, we're going to be super ambitious this morning. We're going to try to read through almost all of them. We're not going to read every single one, but we're going to read a bunch of them and we're going to look at them together and and draw some conclusions about what they maybe mean for us. Now, uh, just a heads up, as Emily mentioned a second ago, um, or a little bit ago, uh, chapter 18 is all about sex. Uh, Chapter 20 is mostly about sex as well. And then chapter 19 is about a whole bunch of other things. So we'll take a look at chapters 18 and 20 first, and then we'll come back to chapter 19. So, Let me read for you um, a bunch of the things in chapter 18. This is starting in verse 6, and if you brought a Bible or you have your own, you can just read along. I'm reading out of the NIV, or you can just listen uh, to some of these instructions. Here's how it starts, or what it says. No one is to approach any close relative to have sexual relations. I am the Lord. Do not dishonor your father by having sexual relations with your mother. She is your mother, for crying out loud. Um, I added that part. Uh, She is your mother. Do not have relations with her. Do not have sexual relations with your father's wife. That would dishonor your father. Do not have sexual relations with your sister, because that's gross. I added that part too. Uh, Either your father's daughter or your mother's daughter, whether she was born in the same home or elsewhere. Do not have sexual relations with your son's daughter or your daughter's daughter. That would dishonor you. Do not have sexual relations with the daughter of your father's wife, born to your father. She is your sister. Do not have sexual relations with your father's sister. She is your father's close relative. Do not have sexual relations with your mother's sister because she is your mother's close relative. Do not dishonor your father's brother by approaching his wife to have sexual relations. She is your aunt. Do not have sexual relations with your daughter-in-law. She is your son's wife. Do not have relations with her. Do not have sexual relations with your brother's wife. That would dishonor your brother. Do not have sexual relations with both a woman and her daughter. Do not have sexual relations with either her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter. They are her close relatives. That is wickedness. Do not take your wife's sister as a rival wife and have sexual relations with her while your wife is living. Do not approach a woman to have sexual relations during the uncleanness of her monthly period. Do not have sexual relations with your neighbor's wife. And defile yourself with her. Do not give any of your children to be sacrificed to Molech, for you must not profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Pause for a second there. You're thinking, what does that have to do with sex? We'll come back to that in a second. Verse 22 Do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. 
that is detestable. Do not have sexual relations with an animal and defile yourself with it. A woman must not present herself to an animal to have sexual relations with it. That is a perversion. And then do not defile yourselves in any of these ways, because this is how the nations that I am going to drive out before you became defiled. And then there's some more about that. And then the very last verse, at the end of the chapter, uh, verse 30, keep my requirements and do not follow any of the detestable customs that were practiced before you came and do not defile yourselves with them. I am the Lord, your God. Now, let's skip to chapter 20. Uh, There's a discussion about Molech there at the beginning. There's a couple of other things. And then it comes back to all of these same commands about sex. But chapter 20 describes the penalty for doing any of these things. So here are just a few examples. Verse 10, if a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. Verse 12, if a man has sexual relations with his daughter-in-law, both of them are to be put to death. What they have done is a perversion. Their blood will be on their own heads. Verse 13, if a man has sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. They are to be put to death. Their blood will be on their own heads. And on and on it goes. Now, let me say a word about these consequences or these penalties first. Um, It's important to realize the Israelites hardly ever carried out these actual penalties. I mean, it's possible that they did from time to time. We just don't have hardly any stories of that happening. And later rabbinical writings say it almost never happened in Israel. So it seems like the Israelites understood these verses in chapter 20 in this way. If you do any of these things... Here's what you deserve. Here's what your behavior has merited. But there's also room for mercy. And this is what we see in David's life. There's a story about King David committing adultery. And then, in fact, he makes it even worse and he commits murder. And uh, he confesses and acknowledges what he's done and he's forgiven. Now, there's still inherent consequences that go along with all of his actions. Um, His... Actions end up destroying his family. It destroys his family relationships. It destroys future relationships with future generations in his family. It ultimately impacts the entire community. And so it's almost like the moral of these stories and of these laws is simple. If you do any of these things, it can destroy you. It can destroy your reputation. It can destroy your family. It can end up destroying the entire community community. Now, let's go back to chapter 18 and all of those instructions that I read you about sex. And let me just make uh, three observations, and then we'll talk about one verse that gets um, a lot of attention. So first observation is this. Uh, These instructions are written for men. You might have noticed that. If you go back and reread them, you'll notice they're all addressing the man. So um, it doesn't say, don't sleep with your father. It says, don't sleep with your mother. And that's because This was a patriarchal society in Israel, and so these laws are addressing the heads of households or the heads of families in order for them to obey and to ensure that everyone else 
in their families obeys. So it's not that women are unimportant, it's just the laws are addressed to the man and with him in mind. Um, Second observation, and these are not just my observations, these come from scholars who have thought about this, rabbis who have studied this and tried to understand what everything means and why this is in there. Second observation, these instructions are for the health and preservation of the family unit. That all of these instructions about sex in chapters 18 and then down later in 20 are all about the health and preservation of the family unit. You see, the family was the core web of relationships within the nation of Israel. It was the, the core relationship in that society. In fact, it's, it's the core web of relationships in most societies still today. Families are essential for human flourishing. Families are where we have our closest relationships. Your family is where you were nurtured and you were shaped and you were formed and you were raised as a child. In fact, biologically speaking, you couldn't exist. You would not have been born without a mother and a father. Now, your family growing up, it might have been an amazing family. It might have been a terrible family. But the family context is essential in our lives. And the book of Genesis even describes this, right? Do you remember when it said, a man shall leave his family and a woman shall leave her family, their families of origin, and they shall come together to create a new family. And it's described in Genesis as the two becoming one. The two becoming one flesh. And this oneness, it refers to uh, the love between these two people. It refers to a commitment they make to one another. It refers to the faithfulness and the fidelity they're going to show to one another. And yeah, it also refers to the intimacy and the sexual relationship that will exist between the two. Because this new relationship, this new family that has formed between the husband and the wife, it will ultimately produce new life. Right? It will produce fruit. And this is actually what God has said to Adam and to Eve, that, that your mandate is going to be to be fruitful and multiply. And so the way that they fulfill that is through the coming together of one another and the creation of this new family. And so in Leviticus, there's this whole understanding in Israelite society of, of marriage and family relationships and, and sex and, and children that, that all goes together and that forms the core of society. Now, they're not the only relationships in society, but they're the most important relationships in that society. And now you see why when you read this long list of rules in Leviticus, so much of it is about family and family members, and it sounds so odd and so strange to us, right? Like, don't have sex with your mother or your sister or your aunt or your aunt's daughter, and on and on and on. But that's because families were so important, and they were the core relationships, and you would have lived with your extended family in close proximity in that society. And it's also saying, if you do any of these things, if you have sex with any of these people that are not your wife, or your spouse, it could destroy the family, right? It destroys marriage because it shatters the union between these two people. It shatters the trust and the commitment and the faithfulness that they had towards one another. It begins to undermine and shatter all of the trust and the faithfulness and the foundation of the entire 
family. Uh, I know a husband who recently cheated on his wife for a third time. And it's destroying the family. They have kids. The kids are teenagers now. Um, It's not only destroying the relationship between the husband and the wife. Um, The oldest son is now thinking, is this what all men eventually do? The daughters are thinking, is this what all men do? Uh, They're thinking, can we ever trust anyone anymore? Can we ever forgive anyone anymore? Our mom forgave our dad the first time, and then he did it again, and then she forgave him a second time, and then he did it again. He keeps betraying all of us. And you see, whenever this happens, the very unit that God created, the very system of relationships that God created that's supposed to be the place where we experience trust, and faithfulness, and fidelity, and love, and and the nurturing and the shaping of children to be the next generation, now it becomes a place of brokenness and pain. And that's why Leviticus takes it so seriously and says, don't do any of these things. Because it destroys everything that human life and relationships and families and sexuality is all supposed to be about and and now you you can maybe even see why this random verse about Molech is thrown in there Molech was a god that the Canaanites worshipped and they believed that he required children to be sacrificed to him to be appeased and so think about that for a second could there be anything more destructive to a family than a father coming to the conclusion that we need to worship this idol and this God, and in order to do that, we have to sacrifice one of our daughters or sons to this God. Think about how that would destroy a family. You see, all of these instructions are given for the preservation and health of these families. One last observation Number three, these instructions in Leviticus 18 are almost entirely about destructive heterosexual sin. So I went back in this chapter and I counted. There are 22 laws about sex in this chapter, 18. Uh, 20 if you take out the two commands about uh, sex with an animal. So of these 20 prohibitions, one is about homosexual sex and 19 are about heterosexual sex. But for some people, a lot of, for some reason, a lot of people focus on the one verse, verse 22, that says, do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. So let me share with you, just real quickly, three mistakes that I think we can make when it comes to this verse, and there's the one also in chapter 20. Here's mistake number one. Um, Using this verse to clobber people. So these two verses in Leviticus are sometimes called the clobber verses by the gay community. And that's because so many straight Christians have clobbered gay Christians or gay people in general with these verses. Gay people have been excluded They've been judged, they've been shunned, they've been condemned with just 
this one verse in Leviticus 18. And I don't think that's just a mistake. Let me be super clear. I think that's just wrong. That is wrong. That is un-Jesus-like. And our prayer is that no one would experience that in our faith community, that no one would ever come to New Denver Church and experience that kind of condemnation. And so if if you're gay and you have been clobbered by Christians in the past with a verse like this, we're sorry. We're sorry that that's happened to you. Here's the second mistake. Throwing out the verse as irrelevant to us. Because this verse has been so weaponized by some people, it would be easy to simply throw it out, right? To just say, well, uh, Leviticus also says that if kids don't obey their parents, we should stone them, right? And uh, it also says that there's certain materials we shouldn't wear if they're made from two different, uh, or clothing we shouldn't wear if they're made from two different kinds of material. And we don't follow any of these, those verses, and so, so we should just throw this one out as well. And it's just not that simple either. I mean, we're about to read some verses <laughs> in the very same section that all of us follow. We're about to read some verses that all of us think are good and right. We're about to read some verses that we think everyone in the world should follow. So it doesn't work to read a passage and then take these verses and say, we really like these, everyone should follow these, but we don't like these, nobody should follow these. It's just not that simple. And so... If we want to know what to do with Leviticus 18.22 today in our context, it's pretty clear what it meant back then for Israel. But if we want to know how it might apply in our world today, well then we have to have a broader discussion about humanity and sexuality. We need to ask questions like, well, what does Jesus say about sexuality? What does Paul say about sexuality? What does the rest of the Old Testament and the rest of the Bible say about God's intent for human sexuality? And that's a really important conversation. But here's a third mistake that we make with this specific verse, and that would be not reading this verse in context. Isn't it interesting that so many straight Christians skip the 19 verses that are about heterosexual acts that are forbidden in Leviticus 18, and they focus on the one homosexual act that is forbidden. I mean, 95% of the teaching in this chapter on sex is directed at heterosexual acts that can be destructive and harmful and hurtful, and not what God intended for human lives and human families to flourish. So I don't know that we should spend another minute on this verse because it's not what Leviticus is focused on. The bigger message about sex is so much more critical and so much more important. And it's simply this, that sexuality is really important. And it's one of the primary ways that God wants us to flourish in our lives. And it's one of the primary ways that he also wants us to consider being holy. In fact, he says in the very next chapter, the first verse, chapter 19, 
The Lord said to Moses, speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, be holy because I, the Lord, your God, am holy. In other words, everything that I just said about sex, and I have a few more things to say about sex, and then I have a whole bunch of other stuff to say about your lives in general. It's all about being holy. And remember, holy just means, it just means different. It means the Egyptians and the Canaanites, they practice ways and they do things that then they worship certain gods that, that, that have diminished their lives, that have stratified their society, that have created economic inequity and economic oppression, that have destroyed their families, that have stripped away people's humanity, that have disconnected people from me. And so I am telling you to be holy, to be different than them, because I am holy and I am different. And then what follows are a whole bunch of new rules or instructions about how we can live lives, not just in the area of sexuality, but in all areas of our lives. How we can live lives that are different and holy and good. We're not going to read all of them. Let me just read you a few. Uh, Verse 3 of chapter 19. Each of you must respect your mother and father, and you must observe my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. So respect your parents. That's not that new. That's pretty straightforward. But observe a Sabbath. That's new. Nobody did that back then. God is saying, one day a week, I don't want you to work. One day a week, I don't want your identity and worth wrapped up in your productivity. I want you to rest on this day and trust in my provision. That is different. Verse 9, when you reap the harvest of your land... Do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. As a community, I want you guys to take care of the poor within your midst. And here's how you'll take care of them. You're going to leave a bunch of extra grapes on the ground. You're going to leave a bunch of extra grain in the corners of your fields. And I know this is different, and I know this is weird, and I know you've never heard this before, and they certainly didn't do that in Egypt, but this is how I want you to take care of the poor and the immigrants in your midst. Verse 11, do not steal, do not lie, do not deceive one another, do not swear falsely by my name, and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. So sometimes you see this mention of God's name, and that's about his reputation, because he's saying, my reputation is tied up with you guys. And so if you make promises in my name and then break them, that reflects on me. Don't discredit me. This whole thing is about you being different because I'm different. Verse 13, do not hold back the wages of a hired worker overnight. So if you hire someone to do a job, pay them when the job is done. Don't take advantage of them. That's what you experience in Egypt. You pay somebody when you hire them to do something. That's what's just. That's fair. Verse 16, do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. I am the Lord. Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Now there's some strange rules here as well. Verse 19, do not plant your field with two different kinds of seed. Do not wear clothing woven of two kinds of material. No polyester blends, right? 
Verse 27, do not cut the hair at the sides of your head or clip off the edges of your beard. That's a good one, right, Matt? Right? Yeah. Uh, Do not cut your bodies for the dead or put tattoo marks on yourselves. I am the Lord. Now, these are odd uh, to us, but these are like the dietary laws that we discussed a few weeks ago. God is saying, even in the way you dress, even in the way you cut your hair and your beards and, and what you look like, I want you to be different than the Canaanites. It's not that having a short beard is evil or sinful. It's not that having a tattoo is sinful. It's not that wearing certain sorts of material are evil or sinful. It's just that I want you to actually look different than them. And in fact, there's evidence that many of the Canaanites had religious practices associated with some of the things they wore or some of the tattoos or the things they did on their bodies. That was their way of worshiping idols. And it's almost as if God is saying, hey, I just don't want you to mess with any of that. I want you to be different in this context. Now there's also rules about the land, there's rules about farming practices, but most of the laws have to do specifically with other people. So verse 32, show respect for the elderly. Verse 33, when a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native-born. Love them as yourself. For if for you were foreigners in Egypt, I am the Lord, your God. So treat immigrants just like everybody else. Treat immigrants just like... It doesn't matter what their status is, and it doesn't matter what their stories are. Show them the same love and compassion and dignity and respect that you show anybody else. And do you know why you should do this? Because that's the way I treated you when you were immigrants, when you were foreigners in the land of Egypt and you were experiencing oppression. And this starts to get to the heart of all of these rules in this section because there's one thing that's said right in the middle of this chapter and right in the middle of the entire section. It's one idea that sort of summarizes all the ideas. One rule that's at the heart of almost everything it means to be holy. Verse 18, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people but... Love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Love your neighbor as yourself. And it's Jesus who's teaching 1,300 years later. And he says, that's it. That's one of the keys. Right right there in the heart of Leviticus. It's all about you love God and then you love your neighbors as yourself. Everything in the entire law, everything we were ever commanded, it all hangs on this. And you can imagine some of the disciples sitting there thinking, okay, Jesus, can you be more specific? What does it actually mean to love our neighbors as ourselves? And I can picture Jesus saying, well, let's just start with Leviticus 18 through 20. Right? Here's what it looks like. You don't lie to people. You don't hold grudges. You don't hate people in your hearts. You take care of the poor. You're honest. You're faithful to your spouse. You protect family relationships. You don't sleep around. You're fair. 
you're just, you respect the elderly, you treat immigrants just like everyone else. This is how you're different. This is how you're holy. This is how you love your neighbor as yourself. And here's the deal. This was a challenge that was not just for ancient Israel. And it was not just for Jesus' first followers. It's a challenge that's still for you and for me today. Of course, our cultural context is different. And the way this is lived out will sometimes look different. But we do all of these things as a way of loving our neighbors as ourselves. And sometimes this is easy because you're motivated, right? Sometimes you just wake up and you want to serve other people. You want to love other people. You want to be kind. You want to tell the truth, right? You want to be honest. You want to be just. Sometimes we're just motivated to do that, and that's great. Other times we do all of these things because we see the benefit even for ourselves in doing all of these things, right? If I treat people this way, it's going to make my life better. It's going to make all my relationships better. It's going to make my family life better. It's going to make my work life better. It's going to make my neighborhood better, right? We've all learned that when we break promises, that's bad, right? When we hold grudges, it gets bad. When we deceive other people, when we betray other people, the consequences are never good. Life is always worse when you do that. So sometimes we do all of these things because we've learned when we live in this way, it actually benefits our lives. It makes our lives better. But here's the deal. God knew that the Israelites would not always be motivated and they would not always see the benefits in their lives by doing all of these things. And so over and over and over, he says, 25 times, in fact, in these three chapters, don't forget, I am the Lord, your God. I want what's best for you. I saved you to live a better life. I want what's best for you. I know what's best for you. I'm not going to ask you to do anything that you can't handle or that you couldn't actually do. I am on your side. And sometimes it's going to be easy to do some of these things because you'll be motivated. Sometimes it's going to be very clear what the long-term benefits are for your life and your community by doing these things. But sometimes you're just going to have to trust me and keep remembering that I'm on your side and that I saved you from death so that I could give you a new and better life. And I think God says the same thing to every single one of us that's here or that's watching today. And so let me just ask you this final question. Is there any area that we've discussed? Is there any verse or thing that we've read today where you're feeling convicted? Where you felt challenged. Maybe it's an area of sexuality. Maybe it's just showing love and compassion to others that you don't think deserve it. Maybe there is a specific relationship in your life where you haven't been as loving as you would like to be. Where is it that you need to trust God more with this? Let me pray that we could all figure out how to do that.
God, we recognize that we live in um, a dark world right now. Um, there's just a lot of chaos and confusion and division and anxiety and fear and hardship. Um, and we recognize, God, that you have called us to be your light into this world, that you have saved us and equipped us and called us to bring your light and your love and your compassion into this world. And so, God, we pray this morning that you would help us do that. You would give us the courage to know how to do that. If there is an area of our lives where we feel like we've stumbled or we failed miserably, help us to believe that you still love us, that you have mercy and grace for us, and that we can come to you and that you'll forgive us, and then you'll challenge us to go out and still be holy and still be loving and still be compassionate and still be your light into this world. We want to do that. Help us to believe that you can help us do that today. Pray this in your name. Amen.